In contrast to the customary coronation of kings, in which a people first exists, and then they crown a monarch, God became king by allowing humanity to come into existence. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 55, The King and Us. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Rabbi Yochanan said, one should always strive to run towards kings of Israel. And not only should he run toward kings of Israel, but also toward kings of the nations of the world, so that if he will be privileged, he will distinguish between the kings of Israel and the kings of the nations of the world. So the Talmud tells us, it is a virtue, a learning experience to study royalty. And I, ladies and gentlemen, have followed this rabbinic dictum. I have studied Britain's conception of coronation and read about their kings throughout the ages. I have read books about the houses of Tudor, Stuart, Hanover, Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, and Windsor. And I have read and watched some of the greatest plays and films about kings. Beckett, A Man for All Seasons, Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V, The King's Speech, The King and I, and of course, The Lion King. And if this is always important, always interesting, it is especially so on the day that we release this Bible 365 podcast, the day before Rosh Hashanah, a holiday whose theme, among others, is Malchiot, the kingship of God. In Eastern Europe, the first night of Rosh Hashanah was known to some Hasidim as Koronatia Nacht, Coronation Night. Again and again, we call the Almighty Melech al Kol Haaretz, King of all the earth. It therefore behooves us, in accordance with the Talmud, to seek to understand what Jews mean by the concept of kingship and how this approach differs from the general conception of royalty. And either through happenstance or through the excellent planning of the man behind the Bible 365 podcast, we broadcast our discussion of the passages about biblical kings on the day before Rosh Hashanah, the day when Jews crown God as their king. And so we must ask ourselves, what do we mean when we call God a king? What difference is one supposed to note between the Jewish notion of royalty and that of the larger world? Why is it so important to coronate the Almighty year after year? And what might my own delving into royal history teach us about the meaning of monarch? The chapters that we have reached describe the various leaders of Israelite society, prophets, priests, and judges. And we are also introduced therein to the biblical laws pertaining to monarchs. Deuteronomy 17.14 When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and you shall say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are round about me. Thou shalt set a king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. These are the verses. Much at first blush is ambiguous here. Is the Torah predicting that Israel will appoint a king? Is it obligating Israel to appoint a king? Or is it resigned to the possibility that Israel will want a king, though the Torah would prefer that it does not have a monarch? These are questions that we will not resolve today, but we will return to them again and again, especially in the book of Samuel. For now, what is important is that the Torah seeks to stress that an Israelite king differs from most monarchs. He is to refrain from many of the trappings of the rulers of the rest of the world. 
And he is also obligated to keep a Torah with him always. Verse 18, And it shall be, when he sittest upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this Torah on a scroll before the priests the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. The Torah, then, gives the reason for its concern and the root of these obligations, that his heart not be lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children, in the midst of Israel. This, then, is the Torah's ultimate concern, that the king's heart include his brethren, and that the king's heart not grow haughty above his brethren. Royalty, it would seem, is at least in part a matter of the heart. Maimonides further elaborates in his own Laws of Kings on this verse by stating that if the Torah is particularly concerned about the heart of the king, it is because libo hu lev kol kahal Yisrael, the king's heart is the heart of all the people of Israel. The king's heart, in other words, must contain the hearts of all his subjects. It is expanding beyond oneself that for Judaism is the essence of Israelite royalty. The wonderful film The King's Speech depicts the King of England's relationship with his speech therapist, Lionel Logue. In order that they be equals during therapy, Logue insists that he call the king Bertie. But of course they are not equals. And the king treats his therapist the entire time as a servant. He never calls him Lionel, only Logue. At the end of the film, when the king, thanks to Logue's help, successfully gives his wartime speech, the king first says, Thank you, Logue. Then, the king walks over, shakes Logue's hand, and says, Thank you, my friend. And only then does Logue truly sincerely respond, Your Majesty. Logue understood, in other words, that it was precisely the king expanding his circle of friends beyond what he needed to. That is what made him majestic. And if it is expanding one's heart beyond oneself that defines the melech, Hebrew for king, then it is at least in part because this reflects the Almighty's royalty. Thus, one of the most famous stanzas of Jewish liturgy, Adon Olam Asher Malach, Peterim Kol Yitzir Nivra, Master of the Universe who reigned before creation, Le'et Nasa Bechefzo Kol, when all at his will came into being, Azai Melech Shemonikra. Then was God called a king. God became king because he made room in existence for others. In contrast to the customary coronation of kings, in which a people first exist and then they crown a monarch, God became king by allowing humanity to come into existence. What made the Almighty a monarch is that though utterly self-sufficient, he was not satisfied to live in existence all alone, and that he therefore, in love, brought the world into being. In Jewish mysticism, this is described as a great mystery. God, though infinite and everywhere, somehow lovingly made room for the universe to come into being and thereby became a king. A king, then, is defined in Judaism not by the ceremonial palace and guard that set him apart from the people, but the very opposite. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik has noted that in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, the experience of God dwelling amongst us on earth 
is described by the term malchut, kingship. This, he argues, seems initially counterintuitive. A king, at least in the ancient world, is set apart from his subjects. But we see from this, as Arisalavichik wrote, that, quote, an open existence is a royal existence. The king resides in the midst of the people. He is always close to his subjects and accessible to them. Everybody and everyone may approach the king, widow, orphan, woodchopper, water drawer, vagabond, stranger, old-timer, sinner, or thief. Each may complain to him, demand justice, and ask for help. End quote. When I watched Steven Spielberg's film about Lincoln, I was struck by how then the White House was accessible. Everyone would just walk in anytime and complain or kvetch or plead with the president about his or her personal problem. It may seem strange to us today, but as Rabbi Soloveitchik noted, some of the most famous monarchs in Israelite history made themselves accessible to the people. As we will see, Solomon, who ruled over Israel as a superpower, maintained a throne room that was open to every member of Israelite society. As Rabbi Soloveitchik put it, quote, kingship in general historical terms precipitates the separation of the king from his people, his existential exclusiveness. However, in Judaism, malchut, kingship, means integration of the individual and the community and existential all-inclusiveness and openness. The king opens himself up to everyone and embraces the entire nation without excluding anybody. And then Rabbi Soloveitchik concludes by drawing on Maimonides' words, Melech libo lev kol ha'am, meaning the heart of the king is the heart of all the people. And Rabbi Soloveitchik concludes, Malchut, meaning kingship, requires of man not only to be aware of the existence of others, but also to feel, to experience their existence as if it were his own. End quote. This, then, is the Jewish notion of kingship. In expanding one's heart to include others, royalty is made manifest. We return briefly, then, to a concept that we have examined before in previous podcasts, which is the difference between kings and other Israelite leaders. As our passage in Deuteronomy describes, the Supreme Court of the Jews, ultimately known as the Sanhedrin, issues forth its rulings from the midst of the holy, from the sacred site that the Lord will select. Chapter 17, verse 10. And thou shalt do according to the tenor of the ruling, which they shall declare unto thee from that place which the Lord shall choose, and thou shalt observe to do according to all that they shall teach thee. In accordance with this verse, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem met within the temple precincts. Similarly, the priests, the Kohanim, also discussed in these passages are themselves dedicated to God, marked to minister in the holy. But the king, as we have just read, is different. He is obligated to write the Torah that he carries with him in the presence of the priests, meaning within the temple, but then he bears it out with him in the presence of all Israel. This way, we are told, the king's heart will not arrogantly rise above that of his brethren. The king thus bears the law of God throughout the land, throughout Israel, even as his heart expands to include all of Israel. This is royalty. The implication, then, is that when we imitate God and expand our lives beyond ourselves, in service of him and of others, we act royally. And this is how we can understand the sages' insistence when they imply that a groom and bride are akin to a royal family. For the past six centuries, British kings have been coronated under a shining, shimmering canopy of silk or gold. When James II was coronated, his canopy tore at the precise moment that his crowning was announced from the tower. 
And this, as some note, was considered an eerie omen, seeing as how his subjects would eventually expel him in what was known as the Glorious Revolution and crown his son-in-law William of Orange. For Jews as well, the canopy is associated with royalty, but in a very different sense. I once read the biography We Too, which is a description of the marriage of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. It tells us that when Victoria got into an argument with Albert, he once locked himself in the bedroom and she knocked on the door. And he asked, who's there? And she replied something like, it's the Queen of England. And there was no reply from her husband. And then again, there was a knock. And again, he said, who's there? And then she said, it's your wife, Albert. And then he opened the door. Jews may not marry kings and queens, but for Judaism, it is precisely the fact that they chose to marry that makes them royal in Judaism's eyes. The sages say in the rabbinic text, Pirkei Derbelezer, Chatan Domelamelech, a groom is akin to a king, from which it follows that a bride is a queen. And it is noteworthy that even as the chuppah has evolved throughout the centuries, a wedding canopy today, like the coronation canopy of royalty, is without walls, and perhaps it embodies the notion that the Jewish bride and groom are expanding their world, breaking down barriers that separate I and thou, miraculously making more room in their lives, like God, who made room in his life for the universe, and acting like the king of kings, they too become queen and king. We are now perhaps able to understand why year after year we coronate God on Rosh Hashanah. Not because God needs it, but because we need it. For in pondering the essence of Jewish royalty, we better comprehend how we too can become members of a royal court worthy of crowning the king of kings, albeit with a very different crown than other kings. Britain's imperial state crown contains jewels from throughout its history. It has, according to what I've read, a sapphire of Edward the Confessor, pearls that happen to be worn by Elizabeth, meaning Elizabeth I. One can see on it a ruby that was worn by Henry V as he fought at Agincourt, and it has a very famous diamond that is called the Star of Africa. Now these jewels, ladies and gentlemen, based on what I've read, were heavy. Sometimes mishaps occurred. Thus, when George III, or as my friend the historian Andrew Roberts calls him, America's last king, was coronated, a large diamond fell off his crown, and it became lost, at least temporarily. And noting the ominous implication, the poets wrote as follows. When first portentous it was known, great George had jostled from his crown, the brightest diamond there. The omen mongers, one and all, foretold some mischief must befall, some loss beyond compare. And of course, indeed, it was under George III that Britain lost America, the crown jewel of the colonies. It's therefore striking that the jewels of God's crown are, according to the rabbis of the Midrash, sewn with an ethereal stitch by the angels above, weaving together gems that are more precious than stones, but lighter than air. This particular statement by the rabbis becomes much more profound when we see it through the lens of our passage, and we see how the expansion of the heart is the true nature of royalty. Amar Rabbi Pinchas, or Rabbi Pinchas said, when Jewish communities pray, they do not do so simultaneously. Rather, first one synagogue prays, then somewhere else another. When all of them have finished, we are informed, the angel appointed over the prayers takes all of them and weaves them into a crown and places the crown of prayers upon God's head. 
What an image. It is Jews joining other Jews in prayer to God, living their lives beyond themselves. That is the Almighty's adornment. For he, as king, revels in his relationship with us, and it is we who take part in his coronation. Rabbi Soloveitchik would recall as a young boy, sitting in school as a child, and listening to his Rebbe, his teacher, who was himself a chassid, say, right before Rosh Hashanah, in a tremulous voice, something like, Tonight, my children, we coronate God. And do you know who gets to place the crown on God's head? Yankel the tailor and Beryl the shoemaker, Zalman the water carrier, and Yassel the painter. The point, perhaps, is that we coronate God to remind us what kingship truly is, to remind us what truly matters, to remind us when we truly matter. In 1966, on a Saturday night in the winter, Shai Agnon became the first Israeli to receive the Nobel Prize from the King of Sweden. I've seen various versions of this story, but here is one of them, written in the Jerusalem Post by Shira Leibovitz-Schmidt. Quote, Agnon refused to attend the Saturday morning dress rehearsal for the ceremony. He walked to synagogue instead. He said that since the literature prize is awarded toward the end, he would watch how those who preceded him behaved and do likewise. Back in 1966, a stretch limousine, motor running, awaited Agnon as soon as three stars appeared in the sky, signaling the Sabbath's end. Although the ceremony had started, Agnon took his time and prayed the evening Ma'ariv service, made Havdalah, marking the Sabbath's end, and lit four candles since that year December 10th fell in mid-Hanukkah. The holiness of the Sabbath suspends time, that voracious monster incinerating every moment of our lives, and we abstain from making preparations for post-Sabbath activities. Thus Agnon would not even get dressed in his tails before Havdalah. Finally, his limousine rushed him across Stockholm with a siren-wailing motorcycle escort. Protocol was waived and he was allowed to sit next to the chauffeur so that he could plug his electric shaver into the cigarette lighter and eliminate the Sabbath growth of beard. End quote. So Schmidt writes, and in other versions that I've seen elsewhere, it is told that, arriving at the hall, he then went to meet the king of Sweden to receive the prize and it was noted by the reporters that his lips were moving. When asked what he said to the king, Agnon said, actually, I was not speaking to the king. Rather, I was speaking to the king of kings, murmuring the blessing that, according to the Talmud, one is supposed to say upon seeing royalty. Blessed art thou, Melech HaOlam, the true king of the world, Asher Natan Mikvodol Basar Vadam, who gives of his glory to mere flesh and blood. It is advised to ponder royalty, for if we do so, we may come to understand the difference between the Jewish conception of royalty and that of others. To those listening, as we approach Rosh Hashanah, I wish all of you a Shana Tova and a joyous coronation night when we will coronate God as King and ponder for our own lives the nature of royalty that matters most. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, Looking forward to learning together with you next year. Signing off.